Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 1. We are in a study of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we're going to walk through 1 Corinthians, uh, hopefully uh, in a timely fashion, and um, we're going to... A challenging book. We, we saw last week that we're going we're gonna to be challenged. 1 Corinthians is going to uh, put some things right in our face. Going to challenge us uh, with, with maybe even some things we've done, some beliefs maybe we've held on to. It's going to challenge us. And, and I pray that we would uh, receive them in love. I pray that I asked you last week to pray for me. I pray that I would teach them and, and preach them in love. I pray that you would receive it that way. And uh, the Word of God is, is um, uh, good to point out sin in our life. We need that. And so uh, we hopefully, hopefully we will receive that in, in love. And um, uh, the, the good news is for you, the bad news for me, I, I get, to, I get to, to mull over this for weeks and weeks and weeks. And the Word of God uh, points its finger directly into my life and attitudes and things. And it's challenging to me too. So I'm not, I don't want you to think for two seconds that I'm above that. I'm right there with you. I, I'm challenged uh, by the Word of God. And, and I'm constantly asking the Lord to, to search me. And if there, there are attitudes, if there are thoughts, if there are uh, ways of living, things like that, that, that I have bought into of this world that are not aligned with the Word of God, that He'd give me the the courage and the strength to, to eradicate those things from my life. And so we're going to be challenged. And, and the Corinthian church, again, a very, very worldly, very, very secular church. And what we've said last week is not, not, not too much unlike where we are today in the world that we live in today. We said that Corinth was, was like Las Vegas, New York, and uh, L.A. all at one city, all wrapped up in one city. Well, guess what? Those cities are all wrapped up in our United States, and they're all over our United States. You don't have to live in Las Vegas to be impacted by that, or New York, or L.A. We're impacted here in Tampa. We're known worldwide just here in Tampa for some things that we would rather not be known for. People come in from all over the world to this town to do some things that I wished weren't true. And so how do we be the church in a city owned by a great God and not let that city and culture get into us. That's what we're going to look at. And Daniel and I uh, kind of designed the, the logo you see there for this, for this uh, series. Um, I, I'm not the most techie or creative guy in the world, but I understand that's the culture we live in. And so we, we kind of thought you know, of a community crime watch. That, that resembles the, the signs you see in a community. We, we are a community here. We're linked. We look out for one another. But we do it in love. We're, we're not like some of these, some of y'all live in, we live in a neighborhood with a homeowners association. Sometimes, I went to my very first homeowners association meeting the other day. You want, if you ever want to go to a meeting with a group, a group of people that are emphasizing and mad about the wrong things, go to a homeowners association meeting. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Oh, there was a weed over here. Oh, there was a, I'm like, get me out of here. Get me out of here. I, I, the, the Homeowner Association president is a friend of mine. He goes to Idaho main campus, and, and, and they're trying to get more involvement. I went. That's a nightmare. Nightmare. So, uh, but, but we're a community. The, the, the essence of a homeowner's association is good to look out for one another, to maintain the level of the homes, to maintain a standard. 
to not allow the, the neighborhood to deteriorate, to not allow things to go on in the neighborhood that shouldn't go on. The essence is good. The point is good. Sometimes they get a little off track and worried about the wrong things. And sometimes we as believers can do the same thing. We, we are a community. We're brothers and we're sisters. And, and you see the word unity highlighted there. We, we commit to look after one another in the Lord. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is looking out for them. He's watching out for them. And it's good for somebody to come alongside and say, Hey, what are you doing here? That, that may sting, but no, if they do it in love and that's their motivation, that's a good thing. And we ought to be like that. And I pray that we would be like that. And so we're going to work the, walk through 1 Corinthians and we're going to deal with some of these hard passages. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 31. Let me read it and then we will do our best to, to honor the text and be faithful to the text. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Lord, I pray that uh, you would open our hearts to your word, that, that I would be faithful to the text, that I would give honor to the text, true to the text. Lord, that is our cry each and every week. And I, and I pray that we would honor you as we open up and uh, look through your word and, and apply it to our lives. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, remember last week we looked at verses 1 through 17 and we, and we started out by saying, by saying, know who's you are. Know whose you are. Paul makes it very clear right from the beginning that, that this is not about him, that we are not about ourselves, that we have been called, that we have been chosen, that God in His love has, has chosen us, if you will. He has sent His Son to die for us. And, and this week I was, uh, we had some downtime here and there, and I was, I'm reading a book called uh, Creature of the Word by Matt Chandler. And I read something, and I want, I want to share it with you. It, it, it goes great with, with what we said last week and really builds upon this whole letter. Matt Chandler writes this, The gospel provides the greatest identity one can ever find. Because of the gospel, we can understand that we are His. Because of the gospel, we can walk in confidence. We are His forever. 
identity. We, we are to find our identity in Christ. We are to find our identity in whose we are. And, and our identities, uh, we, if you find your identity in anywhere else, and there's lots of places that we find our identities. Athletics, you know, I, I, growing up, that was a big deal for me. I played a little bit of basketball in, in, in high school. Clearly, I didn't fit the mold height-wise to be a stellar basketball player. I realized that very quickly. I played on a, our high school team was very, very good. We had three individuals signed Division I scholarships when they graduated. Clearly, I made a good choice and got out of there while the getting was good. But I, I was an avid golfer. And, and I'll be honest with you, I lived to see my name in the paper. Loved, loved you played a golf match the next day. Now, Tallahassee's not very big. There's not a whole lot to fight for time. And so high school golf, we made, our na- we made the paper. And, and, and I lived to get my name in the paper. I loved the next morning to wake up to run open the sports page, and usually it was way toward the back. But hey, it would say, God be high school. Golf. See Basham. If it was a good score, it was good to be in the paper. If it was a bad score, should have missed that day. But I lived for that. You know, my senior year, District 4A, 5A, Golf of the Year, I, I, I can still remember sitting in class and hearing that announced over the intercom at high school. Chris Basham, congratulations to Chris Bastrom, Basham, District 4A, 5A, Golf of the Year. That's a big deal. But it was an identity placed in the wrong place. Because guess what that has me today? Nothing. Nothing. But what about other places that we find identities? Businessman. Accomplished in the community. All these places that we look for identities. Dad, mom, husband, wife. They're not all bad. Paul's just saying, make sure you find your identity in Christ. Because all these other identities are going to fade. I could not even tell you, I don't even know if I got a trophy or anything from being 4A, 5A golf of the year, much less where it is. I certainly don't even put it on my resume these days. It, it accomplished nothing. A lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of, a lot of money went into to growing as, as a golfer. It's gone. That's not where I, my identity is. And, and Paul is saying, Only your identity in Christ will last forever. And he's going to talk about that over and over and over in many, many ways in this letter. He's going to say it in many different ways, in many different forms. But at the end of the day, what he's drawing you back to is the gospel. Your identity is in whose you are. And I pray that we would know the gospel and the identity that we have in the gospel. And and again, we search, the problem is we search in so many other places for identities. And today, again, we, we, as I read, we're looking at verses 18, 31. And Paul is challenging them with things that are going on in the world and the culture around them. And he's telling them it's, it won't last. God is not going to have his, have his way. He is going to have His way with that. He's going to confound that. He's going to, to, to stunt that. You can't pursue that. You can't pursue your identity in that. The, the, the Corinthian culture valued knowledge. They valued wisdom. They valued all kinds of other other man-centered things. And Paul is saying, God intentionally designed the gospel to confound those things. To confront those things. Intentionally designed to do that. 
And Paul is going to undercut pride here. He's going to undercut boasting. He's going to undercut any form of self-exaltation that man may come up with. And he's going to do it. He's going to culminate that in verse 31. He says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If we're going to boast, let's boast in what God has done for us. Not, not in what we've done, what God has done. And Paul says the gospel cuts every bit of our boasting in self out from under us. Every bit with regards to salvation. And he's going to divide us again into two categories, just two. Saved and the unsaved. Those who see the power of the gospel and those who stumble over the gospel. That, that's it. That's it. And the question is going to be, which are you? Which are you? And are you sure? In 2 Corinthians, 3, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, Test yourselves to see if you pass the test. And he says, Is Christ in you? I would say the same thing, and Paul is dealing with that here. Which camp are you in? And it's all in how you respond to what God has done at the cross. Your response. How do you respond? So let's jump in. The first, the first thing we see, verse 18. God designed... God designed the cross to destroy the wisdom of this world. Verses 18 through 25. God designed the cross to destroy the wisdom of this world. And so that we would have to come to Him through grace and belief alone. God designed the cross to destroy the wisdom of this world. Everything we see here in, in, in 18 through 31 really is built on verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech, so that the, Christ, the cross of Christ would not be made void. The whole point here, Paul is saying, the, the, the cross will not be made void. It will not be made void. That is the point to how God designed salvation. It will rely totally on the cross. Our salvation relies totally upon what God did in sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross. Not on, not on something we've done, not to prove our power, not to prove our smarts, not to prove our wisdom, but to prove God's. It's the cross. And, and, and what God did in the cross was always intended throughout all history. You look through the Old Testament, everything was pointing to Jesus hanging on that cross. Everything. It, the, what our kids are learning in, in the gospel project, it, they're seeing the, the cross and Christ woven throughout the whole Bible. That's the common thread throughout the whole Bible. It's the cross. It's not a collection of, of great stories that are just this hodgepodge, this quilt. No, no, it, it is the story of the cross from beginning to end. You look all the way back to Genesis 3.15. God tells them, I'm going to send my son. You're going to bruise him on the heel, Satan, but he's going to crush your head. All the way in Genesis 3.15, the gospel is preached. And, and this, the idea of the cross, the idea of their Messiah hanging on a tree, being crucified, was utterly preposterous. I, I, cannot, I cannot tell you how strongly, how, how foolish that was to this culture, that idea. And, and the cross was the end, is the end of, of self-sufficiency, it's the end of human reasoning, it's the end of boasting, it's the end of, of human wisdom, it's the end of all of that. All, all human devices, all human schemes of achieving your own salvation, of, of meriting God's favor, of getting to God on your own, destroyed at the cross. And that was difficult for this culture. 
But that's difficult for our culture. Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. The reality is, if we're honest, we want to sit in judgment of things. We want to take this book and we want to pick through it and and we want to take the cross and we want to pick through it to see if if we agree. Let me just see what I think about that. Let, Let me sit in judgment over it. Instead of the rightful spot is us being in submission under it. If we're honest, we do that. We come to questions, and it's like, okay, you got to prove to me you're true. you got to prove to me this is what it is. got to prove to me. And, and no human, no human would have ever dreamed up the cross. We would not have dreamed up salvation to be accomplished at the cross. A, a crucified Messiah, again, in Paul's culture, was absurd, was unheard of, was unacceptable. Humiliating. That, they're, that the Messiah would die on a cross. Humiliating. Look, look Again, verse 18, For the word of cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That word foolish, Paul says that word over and over and over again. The Greek word is, is the Greek word Mariah. That's where that word is rooted, for, rooted in. We get our, our, our English word moron. Moron from that word. Literally, what Paul is saying is the cross is moronic to the world. It's moronic. It makes no sense. I mean, to be called a moron is not generally a good thing. I know. Moronic. It is moronic to the world. They don't want to hear about, the world does not want to hear about a gruesome, bloody, nasty, despised, spat upon, crown of thorns, Messiah. They don't want to hear about that. The the, the crowd that Paul talked about, they didn't want to hear about that either. And the reality is we have to accept is the cross is divisive. The cross is divisive. And that's how God designed it to be, divisive. And Paul, Paul, Paul gives two, two descriptions here of the groups. You're, there are those who see the cross as the power of God that are being saved, and those who see the cross as foolishness and are perishing. That, that's the only two groups we find ourselves in. You, you either see the cross as the power of God and thus you fall upon it and are saved or you see it as foolish and you look for something else. Two camps. And we are who we are as, as a people of God because of God's power. And that's what Paul is saying here. We are who we are because of His power and He is reminding the Corinthians of who they are. Again, He's writing to a church. He's writing to believers. Don't forget that. He's writing to believers. Struggling believers, but they're believers. And he says, know whose you are. In the world's eyes, you look moronic for following a crucified Messiah. But in God's eyes, you see the the power. There's power there. There's salvation there. Look at verse 19. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. The cross is God's way of doing exactly what He said He would do way back in Isaiah 29, 14. That's the quotation here. He, he, he told them way back in Isaiah 29, 14 what He was going to do, that the cross was going to confound the clever, it was going to destroy the wisdom of the world, it was going to be something that would be a stumbling block. 
And, and, and again, it's interesting. In, in Isaiah 29, 14, in its original context, Paul, Paul, Paul does a great job of quoting verses in their context and using them rightly. In the context of Isaiah 29, it is, it is Israel, um, these are texts where Israel and everybody else is being warned, do not try to match wits with God. Do not try to stand face to face, toe to toe, nose to nose with God. Do not stand there and think you're going to figure him out. Don't, don't, don't stand in his face and demand answers from him. Don't stand in his face and demand explanations from him. It's not going to happen. Don't question his ways. That's the context of Isaiah 29. Is that not the culture that we live in? Questions, questions, demanded responses. And that's why in verse 20, Paul does exactly what he does. Look at verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And in view of the cross, who would he's saying literally, who would have thought that one up? Hey, which one of your wise men out there, who dreamed up the cross? Which one of your scribes, which one of your, your fortune tellers and all that, who, 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 who dreamed that thing up? Who dreamed the cross up? Who would have written the script this way? The answer is nobody would have written the script this way. And that's exactly the way God intended it. Nobody would have written the script this way. Nobody would have accomplished salvation through their Messiah hanging on a tree. Wouldn't have done it. I mean, th think, about, think about just these, these facts, just simple facts surrounding the life and death of Jesus Christ. Think about His birth. Born of a virgin? Nobody would. That's preposterous. Nobody would have dreamed that up. Born to Mary and Joseph? Who were they? They didn't have nobility. They weren't the well-to-do ones. They weren't the ones where you'd say, Oh, well, clearly the Messiah was born to them. Clearly, I can understand that. Who, who announced His birth? The shepherds. The down and out. The outcasts. That's who God came to first to, to announce His birth. And then to the Magi. He's born in a stable. He wasn't born in a palace. He's born in a stable. He was born to a, in a city where they didn't have room and they relegated him to the outskirts. He, he's born in a city whose name was Bethlehem. Nobody, nobody cared about Bethlehem. He, he, he was raised in utter obscurity. What about his death? He dies on a cross. He didn't die going out in this big... No, he died on a cross next to a thief. He, he, he died the way that criminals and the despised of the despised die. That's how Jesus died. Isaiah 53, read that sometime. It is a gruesome picture of the death of our Messiah. No, no, no king would die that way. You wouldn't have drawn that up that way. What about salvation? One man dies for everyone? The thought that everyone is bound up under, in Adam's sin? One sin, we all sin? Nobody would have dreamt that up. That, that we must die to self? That, that Jesus would not only die for the Jews, but He would die for Gentile sinners? You're not going to dream that one up. That, that it would be based on grace and not works? That there's nothing you can do to merit it? You can't earn it? And not only that, you can't lose it. We, we wouldn't have dreamt that one up. That, that God would say that nobody is good. 
man, easy. Come on. What about our self-esteem? No one's good. No, not one. Read Romans 3. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That the best that we could offer God is filthy rags. Again, these are not, not things that humans would have dreamt up. Not the way at all that humanity would have done it. But Paul is saying that's the whole point. Why? Because it eliminates boasting. It eliminates wisdom. It eliminates, and, and here's the deal. The lengths that God went to to eliminate boasting, what's the one thing that we still try to do? Boast. We boast. And we would have had Jesus born to nobility. We would, he would have been announced to the elite. There would have been a great parade. There would have been great pomp and circumstance. Uh, we would have said that man was pretty good, that salvation was based on your goodness, that you could earn it if you were good enough, that it required these things, that you could lose it if you were bad enough. There would have been little grace and mercy. There would have been a lot of works. There would have been scales weighing the works. We would have put ourselves in judgment over who got in and who got out. That's the way we would have dreamt up salvation. And God says, I did this. To eliminate boasting. It, basically, what you see in every false religion, every man-made false religion, there's a reason they all have common themes, because that's what man would have drawn up. In our minds, that's what we would draw up. Not the cross. Not the cross. We would have not done it the way that God did it, and that's the point. And so we stumble over it. So simple, so odd, so different from what we would have expected, and we stumble over it. So simple, we stumble so complicated, we stumble. We can't get past it. You ever been looking for something and it was right in front of your eyes, but you overlooked it? I mean, it's right there and you just overlooked it. Karen, Karen and I um, were, you know, we, we would ask around and figure out where the, you know, ask the locals, hey, where's a good restaurant and where should we eat and all that? Well, they, they pointed us to this one restaurant, so we type it in our phone and we drive, and, and we drive up to where it is, and next thing you know, we're past it. So we turn around, drive back by, we pass it again. Drive around a circle. It was on this marina, at this marina. We're driving in circles. Finally, this guy is pulling his boat out. We stop. I'm humbled enough now to where i got to go ask somebody. It's to that point. So I go up, and I say, hey, where is uh, such and such restaurant? And he says, it's, it's right there on the other side of this on the other side of this marina building, it's right there. It's I said, is it good? Oh, it's phenomenal. It's the place to eat. It's great, great. So we get back in the car, drive over there. I'm like, where is it? The guy says it's right here. There. Now, granted, we passed this bait shack looking building. Now, about four times. Just driving by it, driving by Finally, there's the, we realize, I mean, we're looking at the sign that has everything painted. We're like, literally, it's right here. Where is the restaurant? And what we thought was a bait shack was a restaurant. Now, granted, I would have been nervous to go in there and buy worms to fish with. But this was the restaurant. Why did we miss it? It didn't look like what we thought it should have looked like. Didn't meet our, didn't meet our measurements. Didn't meet our standards. Didn't have a big lit sign out front saying, here we are, here we are. Just a little canoe sitting on the roof. Best restaurant to eat at. Bad news is it closed for the season the day before we got there. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, 
it, it looked like a bait and tackle shop. It looked like it was condemned a week ago and nobody told the people. It did not look like a restaurant. You say, would you have eaten in it? Probably. Those are some of the best places. And all along, listen, we they literally, our blue dot on the GPS on my phone was on top of the red dot, and we couldn't find it. It was frustrating. It was confounding. Like, Karen, we're, we're, we're reasonably intelligent people. Why can't we find this place? It didn't look like what we thought it should look like. It didn't meet our specifications. It, didn't, it wasn't how we would have designed a restaurant to look like. And guess what? We missed it. Matter of fact, we stumbled over it about five times. And again, that's the way it is with salvation. It doesn't look like what we thought it should have looked like. It's not packaged the way that we would have packaged it. And guess what? We stumble over it. We stumble over it. It's literally right in front of us. I'm putting it right in front of us. God has put it right in front of us, and we stumble over it because it doesn't look like what we think it should have looked like. We don't recognize it. Literally, it looks moronic. To us, to have a restaurant that looked like that was moronic. Foolish. Like, clean the place up a little bit. Throw some paint on the walls or do something. But you know what? If you got past all that and you went inside, people said that's the best food you've ever eaten. And guess what? People look at the cross and they say, no way it can be like that. Hey, guess what? You take it by faith, the best thing you've ever seen in your whole life. Best thing you've ever seen in your whole life. Jeremiah says, your words became food and I, and I ate them. Became the best thing he ever tasted in his whole life. You look at 2 Corinthians 4, you couple that, the fact that it wasn't packaged the way that we would have packaged it, couple that with 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In whose case the God of this world, little g, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Look at Romans 1, 18 through 31. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Listen to this. Of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, listen to this, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's what an idol is. We make God to look like something we think it would look like. Something that makes sense to us. Therefore, look at this, God gave them over in their lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And he goes on and on and on. Romans 3.10, there are none righteous, no, not one. There's not even one, he says. The God of this world, the little g God of this world, has blinded the eyes and the hearts and the minds of the unbelieving. And He does it through riches. 
and he does it through our wisdom, and he does it through all these other things that we put our trust in instead of putting our trust in the Word of God and by faith believing the gospel. Because to our flesh, the cross is moronic. A crucified Messiah is moronic to our flesh. But to God, exactly the way He wanted it. It's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. And it's no wonder people don't respond. That's why Jesus says, narrow is the way to heaven, wide is the road to destruction. We, we want to create a gospel where we can flip the script and say, wide, wide, everybody goes to heaven, only a few people miss out. The reality is this, that's not what the Bible says. It says, narrow is the road that leads to eternal life, and wide is the road that leads to destruction. And that's exactly the way God designed it. It eliminates boasting and self. If you're going to come to Christ, you're going to come through faith. You're going to come on your face deserving nothing. And you're going to fall upon God for everything. That's exactly the way He designed it. And if Karen and I could have got past from the, even the, well, the fact that it was closed, we couldn't get past, we would have gone in there and maybe had the best meal we had. But it would have taken a lot to get out of that car. We, we, the first place we ate, we drive up, there was only two cars in the parking lot. That should have been our first clue. That should have been our first clue. Uh, we, go, we went in there anyway, and it was like, what? A, at the, it was a pride kicks in. You're like, we can't turn around now. We've walked in the door. We've got to eat. It, it, but it, it, it's foolishness. Foolishness. I mean, one restaurant over here looked like a bait and tackle shop, had the best food ever. This restaurant over here was clean and crisp and put together. It wasn't what it, wasn't what it advertised itself to be. And we struggle mightily for things that we can't take credit for. Things that don't make sense. Things that we can't reason out. Things that one plus one equals two. And we want it to always equal two. And the cross and salvation is not going to work that way. And when you receive it by grace, when you receive it through faith and your eyes are open, the cross becomes the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your entire life. And it's only by grace through faith that that takes place. That our eyes are opened. It, it, you know, it's like try, trying to convince your kids. Again, all illustrations fall down, break down at some point. It's like trying to get your kids. If you would just try this one time... You will always want to eat it, son. Just try it one time. No, I'm not going to do it. I want my chicken nuggets. This is steak. <laughs> steak. I want my chicken nuggets. Just try it. And, and again, you don't try, God. We actually saw a billboard as we were driving into the city. It says, try God. You don't try God. It's in some money-back guarantee, take it home. If you don't like it, turn it back in. But it's a risk. Placing your faith and trust in a crucified Messiah, it is a risk. A risk. Because it doesn't make sense to our flesh. We can't think it through. Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well-pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It, it was well-pleasing to God to, do the, to, to, to design the cross exactly the way He did, to confound the wise, to save the humble, 
for God to bring people like you and I into a relationship with Him, He says that was well-pleasing. That was His purpose for sending Jesus into this world. He came into the world for one reason, to be crucified because of the debt that your sin and my sin had created between us and God. God designed the cross to take care of that debt if we would by faith place our, tr- place, place our trust in Him. But it's, not, it's going to be tough for our flesh. And, and again, God's purpose in sending His Son as He did for Jesus to die as He did was, look at that, to save those who believe. Will you believe in the cross? Will you believe? That was God's intended purpose, to save those who would believe. And again, you have two, two, two dichotomies here, the, the antinomies, if you will. The cross was initiated by God. Man's only response is to believe. It was God's idea. It was God's design. God was well pleased to do it. Man is responsible for believing. That right there, try to balance those two. You can't do it. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. And please note, believing here, the word believe, it does not mean just give some mental assent. It's not saying, yeah, that's a fact. I I can see that. It's not giving mental assent to some facts. It's not acknowledging it happens. It means literally putting your entire weight, your whole trust, putting your everything in the cross. That's what the word believe there. It literally means to lean your entire weight upon. To the point where if what you're leaning upon was removed, you would fall down and be humiliated. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been crucified and resurrected, we are men most to be pitied. Why? Because they built their whole life around a lie. And my fear is that many of us build our whole life so that as like an insurance policy where, hey, if Christianity is proven wrong, we just keep on trucking. I get about an hour and a half back on Sunday mornings and some money back and I'm gone. That's not the belief that the Bible pictures. It means to lean your entire weight upon to the point where if it was disproven, you would be made a fool of. A fool of. It's the same thing Jesus says to build your entire life. People build their entire life around money and the pursuit of money and stuff and all these other things. Everything they do is driven by that. That's the same belief that he's calling for you here. Everything you do is to be driven by the cross. Everything. Your whole existence, your your reason for existence, your purpose for existence, everything is to bring glory to God. That's the point. It's, it's, it's to, to, to take a risk and put your whole trust in God and be saved. Look at verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and the Gentiles foolishness. You know, the human tendency, we saw it in Jonah, the human tendency is towards idolatry. We want God to conform to our views, to our mindsets, to the way we would act, to the way that we would do things, and we say, God... I'll believe you if you'll do this. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. He says, hey, I put all my cards out there in front of you in the form of a cross. Believe that. There it is. You want me to prove to you my love for you? I just put my son on display on a cross for you. I don't have to do anything else to prove my love for you. My son hanging on the cross forever tells the world I love you. Salvation comes through through me alone. And, and, and the spirit of the culture that Paul lived in and the spirit we live in, 
it, it really was a refusal to take God for who He is. We want to make Him who we want Him to be. We want to make Him palatable. We want to make Him understandable. We, God doesn't have to make sense. He does not have to make sense in order for us, in order for, for Him to be the one true God. He doesn't. I, I heard somebody, when we were up in New York, we had uh, some friends of ours, oh, not in New York, we were in Boston. Get my city straight here. When we were in Boston, some friends of ours moved up to Boston a couple years ago, and, and we had dinner with them one night, and, and we were talking and, um, about flying and that, and, and somebody said, they were talking about how they were in the airport, and they, they, somebody was upgraded. And they were running around saying, isn't God good? I got upgraded. Isn't God so good? Look at me, I got upgraded to this and that. And I was thinking about that. Yeah, God is good. God is good. But even if you hadn't got upgraded, God would have still been good. Your upgrade had no impact on God's goodness. Take it a little further. That plane could have crashed that Karen and I flew, on to, flew up there and back on. It would not have affected God's goodness in one iota. God would have no less been good. That's hard for us in our minds to fathom. But, but God's goodness is not based on me and Karen flying to Boston and coming home safely. God is good. And that's the beauty of finding my identity in the cross, that no matter what happens to me, I'm good. No matter what happens to me, I'm, 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 I'm okay. No matter what happens to my wife, she's a believer in Jesus Christ, she's okay. No matter what happens to Bradley, he's a believer in Jesus Christ, he's okay. God's goodness is not based on His performance for me. God's goodness is based on the cross. And look, it's good. He's good. And again, God's, God's way of showing off His grace is moronic to us. It is foolishness to us. And instead of giving in to the demands of a culture, and instead of bowing down to their demands, guess what God did? God gave them a crucified Messiah. And He gave us a crucified Messiah. And it was an utter contradiction of terms for them. You could have, they, they knew they were looking for a Messiah, and they certainly knew about crucifixions, but ne'er the two should meet. You would never have had a crucified Messiah, and that's what God offered, a crucified Messiah. And from man's point of view, the cross is foolishness. From God's point of view, the cross is a display of infinite power. Romans 1.16, I'll read it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Look at this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's power. Paul says, don't be ashamed. You may be shamed by the gospel because things don't work out and other people look at you funny. But may we never be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. And God's enemies have been overpowered by the cross, and that is exactly the point. And for us, leave it alone. Leave it alone. Leave it as God has shared it, and yet preach it. You can look at Galatians 1. Look at Galatians 1, verse 6. There is a tendency in us to alter it. There is a tendency for us to change it and to make it more palatable. Look at what Paul writes to the Galatians in 1, 6. For I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Listen to this, verse 7. Which is really not another gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. You mess with the gospel, he says, you're to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Leave the gospel alone. Be okay to preach the foolishness of the gospel. Don't try to water it down. Don't try to make the gate wider than it needs to be. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Never, ever, may we never, ever, ever move beyond the gospel. May we never, to move beyond the gospel, Paul says, is to abandon Christ altogether. Be tethered to the gospel as God has, as God has displayed it. But, but not only does it destroy, not only does it destroy the wisdom of this world, but secondly, God designed the cross in such a way that eliminates our ability to boast in anything but the Lord and what He's accomplished. We, we have no room to boast in anything but what, but what God accomplished. And, and that's, again, Paul continues his assault on our pride. I mean, these are the... He, he says, for consider your calling, brethren. He says, look around you. That there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to eliminate... To shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the. There's nobody in here that's noble that I know of. Nobody comes from the elite pedigree. We're just common folk. And God, by God's grace, He He called us into His presence. We have by faith received the glorious beauty of the gospel, and He has made us the heir to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our whole identity changed, but it's all because of God. We've been adopted. You know, no adopted kid walks around bragging around the popping his shirt out in the orphanage. Why? Because it's all due to his parents. It's all grace. And God designed the gospel to confound us, to make us fall upon Him. He literally says, literally, what, ver- what verse 26 says, Paul says, you are nobodies. You're a bunch of nobodies in the world's eyes. Nobodies. And yet that's who God decided to get great glory through, to use to spread His gospel. You don't have the right social status, the right ancestry, the right character, the right background, and yet God saved you to His glory. I mean, this room alone is made up of people who have struggled, are struggling, have been through stuff that nobody would want to go through. We're not a bunch of people that are perfect. Yet we're being perfected in the gospel. We're being sanctified in the gospel. And that's the ones that God called. I mean, I, I was thinking about this. It would be like, those of you know Lee Stewart, he's not here today. He played, he's at a, um, out of town on, um, for a specific purpose there. And he, he played college basketball. Lee's what, 6'2", six, 6'3"? Six, six, to me, he looks about 6'9". I mean, it would be like if we were picking basketball teams... And I was standing here, and Lee was standing here. Now, I played my ninth grade year in high school. Done. Clearly not going anywhere. Lee, height, muscles, college basketball. It would be like you walking up here and saying, I'll take Chris. Do you want to lose? Is that your goal, to lose? That, that's the picture of the gospel, though. That's literally what Paul is saying. Clearly, everyone here would pick Lee. And yet then there's us, despised in the world's eyes, mocked. 
I mean, God's people cut across socioeconomic lines, sociological lines. You've got slaves, you've got free, all colors, all creeds, all race, everybody. God says, that's the way I want it. That's the way I want it. Because I want you to depend on me. I don't want you to depend on you. I want you to depend on me. Verse 27 and 28, for God, I read it, He did it to shame the wise, to shame the ways of the world, to bring it to its knees. And in designing it, in designing the gospel and salvation the way He has, God has eliminated all boasting. He has eliminated boasting. The word boast here literally means to take pride in or to glory in. If, if we're honest with ourselves, we love to boast in ourselves. We love to take glory. We love to take credit. We love to take the praise. We love all that stuff. And God designed the cross to say, eh, not here. He has eliminated all the poss- every possibility of boasting. Eliminated. Every possibility. And, and look, at, look at what he says. So that no man, verse 29, may boast before God. Listen to this. But by his doing... You are in Christ, Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In the gospel, in God, in Christ, believers find their everything. We find our all-sufficient Savior. We owe our entire existence to God, and therefore we boast in Him alone. Everything in verses 30 and 31 is pointing to salvation, what was accomplished at the cross. We've been fully declared righteous. We've, we've, been, we've been sanctified, and yet we pursue it. We've been redeemed. And, and, and it's at the cross, guys, it's, excuse me, it's, it's at the cross that we are humbled. The cross humbles us, and that's why it's a stumbling block, because it humbles us. It's like driving around, can't find the restaurant. The dot says it. I got to finally, I said, look, I got to get out of the car and ask. I got I to ask this fisherman here. That was humbling to walk up to him. Hey, I got my GPS and I got all these other gadgets in the car. I can't find this restaurant. It's right there. Oh, that's what I wanted to hear. It's right there. I go back in the car and Karen says, where is it? I said, it's right there. What? Can't be right there. We drove by right there four times. Karen, I'm just telling you. The man says it's right there. It's humbling. We've got to set aside all human wisdom, all that. It, it, again, it's not saying a blind faith. We certainly dig into the Scriptures, test the spirits. Acts talks about consider the Bereans. They, they dove into the Scriptures. We should. But we come to God through faith. We've got to trust. And if we're going to boast, we're going to boast in what God has done on our behalf. The world will stumble over the gospel that we share. Hear that. They will ridicule you for believing the message. They'll persecute you. They'll shun you and a whole lot more. Be all because of the cross. And the reason why is it cuts their legs right out from under them. They want to boast. The world wants to earn it. They want to merit it. They want to feel like they've done something and the cross does not allow it. The preaching of the cross alone has the power to save and set people free from the penalty and the debt of their sin. Leave the gospel alone. Leave it alone. Boast in it. Glory in it. But stay faithful to it. Don't try to water it down. Don't try to make it more reasonable. Don't feel like you need to make it more understandable. Leave it alone. 
Christ has offered us forgiveness where death was deserved, and He's offered it to the whole world. Through Jesus Christ, we can be set free from the penalty of sin and death, but we have to be freed in Christ alone. And I pray that we would be a people who respond to Christ and respond to the gospel with total belief, total belief, that that we would boast in Christ alone. And here's the the whole application for today. Here's what I'm asking of us today as we move forward. From, From this day forward... In the strength that God provides, to, to, the, to God's glory alone, that we would be a church willing to make fools of ourselves in order to make much of the gospel. That we would be willing to look foolish in the world's eyes to the glory of God. Foolish in Odessa, Land of Lakes, wherever, for God's glory. That, that we would boast, that we would live a life where somebody asks about it, the only explanation we could give is Christ alone. Christ alone. And, and I, so I ask you, what would that look like on, on, in your life? What would that look like on the street you live in? What, what about the business you work in? The community you find yourself in? The house that you live in, maybe? What would that look like? What about the school that you're attending? What would that look like in, in the, the PTA or whatever organizations that you're a part of? What would that look like? You making a fool of yourself for Christ's sake. In the world's eyes. That we commit, no matter what, we're going to make much of Christ. Whatever this world wants to do to us, that's fine. But we're going to make much of Christ. We're going to share with people that we know we should be sharing with. We're going to take that risk. We're going to be more interested in glorifying Christ than we are for glorifying self. I I, I beg, I beg me. This is something I all week I've begged of myself of God to help me do, and I say it to you, fall on Christ alone for what He did and what He accomplished for us. Spend your life making much of Christ. And as we see in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do, do it to the glory of God. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing.